Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 436 of the podcast. Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, I am so excited to be with you today. I am back. Literally, this is the first full day back after over a month off. Yeah, I'll talk about that in the future, but I'll tell you, I learned a ton about myself, about the team who absolutely crushed it while I was away. You didn't notice anything because we just kept going. The uh, company kept rolling while I was away and the team did an incredible job. Shout out to Aaron Ward, my podcast manager who took care of everything and the rest of the team over at Carrie Newhoff Communications. And it's just good to be back with you. We start a brand new segment today called uh, Ask Me Anything About Productivity. So you have been calling in and we're going to talk to Stacy today about some of the challenges with productivity they're uh, having. So stay tuned to the end for that. And we got Louis Giglio. This was a great conversation. I've had Louis on multiple times. Uh, really, really appreciate him. And uh, yeah, we're going to go all kinds of places today with Louis Giglio. Today's episode is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can get 10% off your first year of social media management and digital growth strategy by going to promediafire.com slash carry and by Ministry Grid. Podcast listeners, you will get $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price by going to ministrygrid.com slash carry. So Louis is going to talk about church online, the uh, pros and the cons, what separates elite leaders from second tier leaders, and the enemy in your head. There's been a lot of uh, books, conversation, talks, thought leadership around this subject. Uh, Jenny Allen's got a great book on this. Craig Rochelle does. Louis Giglio weighs in. I just finished reading John Mark Comer's new book called uh, Live No Lies, which he's going to be on the show this fall to talk about it. And this is a really important subject because they say golf is like 10% physical and 90% mental. Having played golf poorly for that for many years, I can attest to that. But uh, I know that there's a battle going on in your head and Louis and I are going to go there. So Louis is the pastor of Passion City Church, the original visionary of the Passion Movement, which has grown to unbelievable numbers. And they exist to call a generation to leverage their lives for the fame of Jesus. So we're going to talk about that and a whole lot more. He is also the national best-selling author of over a dozen books, including the one we're going to talk about today, Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. So Louis, thanks for coming back. It's always good to hang out and chat. And a question for you, are you looking to grow your online campus? I know everything's back in person, but hey, the world is on the internet, right? Well, you got two choices when it comes to digital at this point in 2021. You or a team member can work day and night to keep up with all the strategy that's constantly changing, or you can hire ProMedia Fire and they will do it for you, including mastering the trends to help you grow online. So the choice is yours. You can bury yourself in the work or you can get a team working for you. As a listener of this podcast, you'll receive 10% off for the first year by going to promediafire.com slash carry. That's promediafire.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. And also for those of you who are pastors and church leaders or involved at your church, do you wish you could streamline and standardize your volunteer training? Um, that's a big challenge for a lot of people. If so, you got to check out Ministry Grid. They have everything you need to streamline volunteer training all in one place. It is the online tool to build, customize, and create volunteer training in your church. Now, I know a lot of churches are struggling with getting volunteers, so Ministry Grid can be a real help. In fact, over the past year, they have seen churches adding their own content 
to complement ministry grid training and turn their new members' classes, discipleship growth tracks, even theological training. Digital courses all can happen because of ministry grid. My church, Connexus Church, uses Ministry Grid, has found it very beneficial in our training of volunteers. And here's the best news of all. They're offering listeners of this podcast $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price. So now, for just $399 a year, you can get unlimited access for your church. How do you do it? Head on over to ministrygrid.com slash carry to get the special offer. That's ministrygrid.com forward slash C-A-R-E-Y. Well, let's jump into a wide-ranging conversation with Louis Giglio. Louis, welcome back. It's just great to have you, man. Good to hang out. Carrie, it's always great to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, you're the leader of a large church who now gets to put Survive Global Pandemic on his resume, which is awesome, <laughs> right? I know you were hoping for that one, along with everyone else. Um, you have always excelled at in-person experiences. I mean, you think about the whole passion movement, passion church, um, when you gather 40,000 college students, when you're gathering and there's thousands of people in a service, what have the last 18 months taught you as a leader? Wow, that's a whole podcast in one question. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) You know, the thing, Carrie, about the last year and a half that has been different is not that it was hard. Um, It really wasn't the challenges that we faced. It was just that no one had done it before. So we're about to announce a pretty big announcement in four, four or five days with passion. It's a really big thing, but it's something that I've done before. I have experience, so I know how to go up this Everest. And most, you know, people who go up Everest know how to go up Everest. But nobody knew how to go up what we just went up. It was starting on day one with, I don't know what this mountain is. I don't know how big it is. I was just reading a letter that I wrote to our church about this same week last year. And the tone of it felt totally like we made it halfway and we're almost coming out the back of this thing. And I was just like, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. And no leader did. So every leader was leading in the moment, extemporaneously drawing on wisdom, experience, and the Spirit of God to guide in every step. And I think the thing I learned the most in uh, this last season was that you have to have a flexible story and a flexible organization if you're going to survive the contemporary global landscape. And it may not be a pandemic next time, but there will be a next time. The world is too globally interconnected now that if somebody sneezes in Beirut, it, you say, God bless you, in Costa Rica. And that's just a new world order. And we we now know that. Something happens in mm-hmm. Wuhan, and all of a sudden, the whole world shuts down. And so that's leadership now. You can't plan like a 20-year arc of phase one, two, three, four, five, and six. I mean, you can But you better have a lot of contingencies and you better have the kind of people around you that know how to flex and flow. And you better have a product that's durable because the landscape's going to be very unstable. Hmm. Those are really good insights. So, I mean, you lead a large organization. You lead a movement that convenes tens of thousands of people, a church that does a similar thing. What have you learned about staying nimble? Because I, I agree with you. You know, I run a little company with eight employees. It's not that hard to, to stay nimble, but you, you're, you're leading this big thing. 
what what did you learn about staying flexible? Well, I learned that large organizations don't like flexibility. <laughs> I've learned that recently. Um, there are enough of us now in our organization that flexibility isn't as uh, cool of an idea as it was maybe three or four or five years ago. Yeah. So stability and structure are important. I mean, I have a skeleton and you have a skeleton and the next person has a skeleton and they're relatively the same and they serve the same kinds of functions. They give you stability for when you're sitting still mm-hmm. and they give you the right kind of tools you need for when you want to move forward. Every skeleton does that. So I've been thinking of the organization like that. What, what kind of bones do you need? So that you can sit still and be stable, but you also can stand up pretty quickly and then move forward. And a team needs to know what the guidelines are, what what the baselines are. And a lot of times we throw those out the window in the name of flexibility. And that's a bad recipe for any Mm. family or any organization. But if you make your baselines, um, if you make those your, you know, center line, then all of a sudden any flex or flow is now a negative impulse. And I just think that it's the balance. And so I've been trying to really embrace the balance. I'm way more of a flexor, um, Mm. of a pivoting person. But at the same time, I realize I'm running um, an organization that impacts not only the people on my team, but their, their spouses and their children and a lot of other ripples. And I have to be responsible for that as well. So it's trying to keep both ideas in an even keel. And what the pandemic taught us was, is that the flex is essential. And if you can't flex, you're out of business. I mean, you were out of business and a lot of people are out of business because they couldn't flex. Well, we could flex, thank thank goodness. So we very much stayed in business. In fact, our business, if our business is telling people about the good news of Jesus, our business exponentially went off the chart in the last 18 months in a way we would have never dreamed in our entire lifetime. (laughs) And I think most people whose main goal in life is to tell people about Jesus would say the same. There's a lot of loss, a lot of hardship, um, a lot of of dreams went up in smoke, and a lot of... um, a lot of weighty pain and a lot of death and a lot of sorrow balanced with, I have never seen more people have exposure to the gospel in maybe in my lifetime than in the last 18 months. And so it's kind of that thing of the cross, you know, Rome was running the world. They had a lockdown grip on planet earth. Caesar was God. They had all the cards Yet right in the pinnacle of their power, God did the most important thing that's ever happened on planet Earth. And Mm. so in the middle of all the crazy of the last 18 months, I just kept thinking, you always do amazing things in circumstances that look completely counter to your ability to do something amazing. And so I think in hindsight, we're going to have a lot of reckoning to do with the loss of the pandemic, which I know our nation hasn't even started thinking about mourning the loss of COVID yet. But at some point, once the mourning and the reckoning is is, has kind of had its moment, there's going to be, I think, a startling awareness that maybe we just saw the gospel advance in a way that we haven't seen in our lifetime. How did you see that happen? Because I think a lot of churches and organize. well, it's interesting. I think churches saw an initial surge and then many saw a drop. 
And businesses were the opposite. They saw a drop and then they saw a surge, those who could pivot. Uh, I'm going to have a couple of local restaurant tours from my area north of Toronto on. And I mean, they launched two restaurants in a pandemic. And I was talking to them last week, they can't keep up. Um, that is not the story of most church leaders right now. And you seem to have uh, been hinting at the fact that this was a, a, a banner year for being able to share the gospel. Can you talk about where you saw that traction, how it happened, Louis? Uh, well, you know, I think you're asking, you were really talking about two different things. I mean, as, okay. as far as the church gathered, you know, this is uh, unknown right now. But it's not a, a weird sample set. So when I talk to a pastor who says, man, we don't know who's coming back to our church right now. I'm like, well, nobody knows who's going anywhere right now. It's just right. a complete reshuffling of the deck. And it, Carrie, I, you know, we're, we'll talk eventually about the book. But a few mm -hmm. weeks back when the book released, I was personalizing books after some of the gatherings here for about three weeks. And I had probably 530 second conversations with people who were at our gathering. I'm going to assume most of them were not our normal brick and mortar. Hey, we're, we've been a part of this house for a long, long time. They don't typically go in a book signing line. But of the 500 people that I talked to for maybe a half a minute each, got a chance to meet them. I'm not kidding when I tell you every fifth person started the conversation by saying, I just moved here. Wow. I just moved here. A lot of people from New York just moved here. Um, a lot of people interesting from South Florida just moved here. People from random places like Greensboro, North Carolina, and Charlotte, and Nevada. And then every person in between them was, uh, this is my first time here. I've been a part of your church during pandemic, but I've never been to the building before. So it's nice to meet you. And then in between them was someone who was visiting from out of town who we never had an online church before the pandemic. So we didn't have a global audience for church before pandemic. But now we do. And so there would be random people saying, we drove here on Memorial Day weekend from San Luis Obispo, California, in our RV <laughs> to come to the church that saved our lives during the pandemic. And it just gave me a snapshot of what it looks like to take a deck of cards and just shuffle them four or five times into a completely new deck. So that's the, the gathering church, gathered church right now. Nobody really knows what's in that deck. Hmm. But I can tell you story after story for as long as you want to stay on this podcast today of real people who had no gospel on their horizon, who are now alive in Christ because they heard the gospel through some electronic social media connectivity. Um, a sister came to our Easter gathering last year, not this most recent, but in the middle of pandemic, because she saw that Sadie Robertson Huff was going to be speaking at our church, and she loves Sadie. Mm -hmm. So she says that we live on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. There's no one inviting us to church in our town. There's no Christian club at our school. Sadie's going to be at some church on Easter. I think I'll go. She comes, and at the end of the gathering, she puts her faith in Jesus. She's so excited about what she's heard. She goes and tells her sister, you have to come to the next gathering. Her sister comes to the next gathering and puts her faith in Jesus. Two weeks later, their brother comes to church with them, and he puts his faith in Jesus. And there's two sisters and a brother on a dairy farm in Wisconsin who are starting a little Christian Bible study at their school this year with seven other people who 
had no gospel on their radar. I can tell you story after story after story after story as long as you want to go. And to me, those those kids are not factoring in to the to your question, how are we all coming back together and where's the the flow and the rhythm going? They're just three people who were spiritually lost and now they're spiritually found. And I don't even know if they have a church in their 50 miles from their dairy farm to go to. So that's what I've seen a lot of happen. Passion Conference, Mercedes-Benz was pretty great. We thought it was a pinnacle moment until New Year's Eve 2021 when 785,000 people were online at Passion 2021 in 173 nations around the world. So I we've just seen the reach. And then we're just one little tiny church. And so if you take the exponential, you know, factors and you put them together, I believe there's going to be a moment when things normalize. And I don't mean we're going back to normal, but when people can feel like they're, they're, they're getting a new, new, I think churches are going to be filled with lots of people who found Jesus. And I think they're going to be missing a few who thought they knew Jesus and really weren't as interested as maybe they thought they were. What are your current thoughts on online church, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Uh, as you mentioned, your church wasn't, your local church wasn't online. It was kind of an in-person experience. So, And I realize these views are fluid and we're learning and all that stuff, but what, what are your thoughts about church online now? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, our, just, our to be really candid, our team was, you know, still in the process of trying to decide what were our thoughts. And our, our team wasn't um, convinced that that's what we wanted to do. We had the good fortune of being blessed by at least having the conversation brewing for a year before mm-hmm. uh, March uh, 2020. So we had put a team in place. We'd gotten all the equipment we needed. And we'd actually, for six months, Carrie, this is crazy, been broadcasting our gatherings to no one um, with an online host, with um, all the the mixing and, the, and the every people in place. And we're just sending it to nowhere. So you're doing a dry run, run really, every months. weekend. For six wow. months. And philosophically, we're over here asking all these questions. And, you know, the data is all over the map. But giving goes up when you're online. Uh, volunteerism goes up when you're online. Attendance goes down when you're online. That's mm. just a general, you know, that's obviously a very broad stroke. And so people are like, well, I don't know if your giving goes up and people come and volunteer occasionally. What's wrong with that? Why do you care how many people are in the building <laughs> if you've got enough money to do everything you want to do? To me, the great assembly is about the the dynamic of weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And you just cannot hardly accomplish that if you don't feel the atmosphere of someone's joy or pain. Mm -hmm. And so if you ask me right now, I I would have to honestly say it's it's, it's, it's a neck and neck tie for me right now. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be hard for us to go back and say to the tens of thousands of people or whatever the numbers are that would join us for a gathering, I'm sorry, but the pandemic's over. We're going offline. But if um, if the trade-off is somebody's having to make a decision, I don't feel great today. I don't feel really bad, but I don't feel great. And I could just, you know, watch church from home. 
I think that the scripture says, um, we bring a sacrifice of praise. This this be my answer. I don't know where I am on online church. We bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Meaning when I go to church, it's, it's a sacrifice, not I'm going to get something, but I'm actually coming to bring something. And sure, I will be blessed, but that's not why I'm coming. I'm coming to bless God. It's like today. I woke up and God gave me a gift today called today. I wonder if I took the next step and said, thank you for the gift that you gave me today. I would like to give you the gift of serving you today and being a part of what you want me to do today. So, Carrie, I'm old school like that, and I believe that the church that will survive is the church that people come to because God is worthy, and they want to come bring their offering collectively to God. And so that doesn't really—it's not compatible with what people are experiencing in their den. Um, I only came to church online twice since March because I've been in the building every Sunday except for Sundays on our Mm -hmm. stage— since March 15th, and the Sundays I wasn't there is because I chose to be somewhere else on a beach, not thinking about anything. And I might have been watching, you know, or joining church on my phone for a little bit. But the times I was actually at someone's house two times with a four or five other people in our church joining the online gathering, I know what that feels like. And it doesn't feel like we bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. No, that's, that's fair. I really appreciate you weighing in on that. Um, there's an ongoing debate about college-age students, you know, so you have basically three-quarters of a million who join you for passion, you know, six months ago, which is amazing. They're the most tech-savvy generation in history. We all know that. And yet, so many leaders argue they don't like tech and they want in-person instead, and yet they're online endlessly. Any thoughts about technology and reaching the next generation, Louis? I wouldn't have anything probably more more insightful to say than anybody who's written um, a scientific analysis of what technology is doing to the human brain. It's, mm. I mean, there is not an article that I've seen anywhere by anybody that says that our current use of technology is actually strengthening our neurological capacities. Correct. Or strengthening our sociological fabric or strengthening our self-worth. And so we've got to face it. And what I've learned is that I think we need to pray for a Gen Z leader with a very compelling voice who can call their generation as a shepherd to say, hey, we're going to have to put this down on some level. Uh, because the outcomes are are going to be counterproductive for us and our children and our children's children. Because I I don't think anybody in my demographic, um, and honestly, probably anyone in, in your demographic, is going to mm. be able to speak to a, an, a generation that has been tethered to technology from the jump. And there there's always going to be the caveat. It's easy for you to say you you had a MySpace page. It's easy for you to say you you have to put your phone up to a 24 point font to read your text messages on your phone. It's easy for you. You don't, you didn't grow up like this. And I think that's fair. And I would say, okay, then I'm praying then for a Gen Z leader who has a very compelling voice who can just point to your heart condition, which everyone knows their own personal story isn't great, 
with technology. So yay for technology. I mean, we're using it right now. So, you know, technology is fantastic. But the way technology is using us is not great. And Mm. so you just have to keep asking that question. Am I using technology today to advance God's mission for my life? Or is technology using me today to advance the mission of XYZ organization and I am the product. Um, and if if you feel like you're tipping too far to one side, you have to. I think you have to take a pretty radical stand. And we're coming to a reckoning somewhere pretty soon, I believe. And I hope that there's a young leader who's ready to seize that moment and say, it's time to make a change. Well, a lot of young leaders listening right now. So maybe somebody heard that. And I think that's really wise counsel. It is a two-edged sword, Louis. It is you know, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. It's also potentially positive and deeply damaging. And it's all of those things in one. So it's, it's, it's complicated. Um, yeah, I let's think talk, anything, you know, yeah. just to follow up on that one second, I just, I think that the message that I'm, I'm carrying, and I believe the message that you're ultimately carrying is about, um, about seeing ourselves through the, the lens of, of the creator, and this is our this is what we're trying for every day is to help someone see themselves not through the lens of themselves but through the lens of the creator and it's like a compass as soon as you take the pen out and you put the pencil at the middle and you put the little pinpoint around the edge you're just cutting a big hole in the paper but if you put the pen in the middle <laughs> you actually can draw a circle that has some beauty and form and I think that we've got to get the pen and the and the pencil, you know, in the right space. And if we do that, then I see myself every day, not through the lens of myself, but I see myself through the lens of the creator. And it's very hard to, to consistently live that out when you're looking in at a mere reflection of everybody else's reality. That's a good analogy. Um, let's talk about in-person, we're going to get to your book, but let's talk about um, in-person experiences moving forward. Do you think these last 18 months and even the advent of technology, I mean, it was there before, but it's kind of around now. The genie's out of the bottle, right? Like you're online, everyone's online, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think in-person experiences will change? What will remain the same? What might be different? Any thoughts as you even look six months or a year in advance? Well, you know, you're asking me a lot of, uh, you're asking me to to get on my tiptoes on the top rung of the ladder and try to look over the top of the hill. And it's hard to to do that. I think most leaders right now, if they've learned anything in the last 18 months, it's um, soften all of your hard edge knowledge and wisdom just a hair and maybe say, I don't know. So for me, Carrie, I think it's looking back. I grew up in a real time, and maybe some other people did too, but my first memories of church were live network television. I know, crazy. I'm talking 11 a.m., the red light comes on the camera, we're on TV in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was that way up until when Dr. Stanley became the pastor and our church split, went from 3,000 people to 300 people, and all of a sudden we weren't on TV at all. 
But then the church got this massive wave of momentum and in touch ministry started. And then we were on TV all over the world. And so when I was 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, and you went to church, you knew you were on TV everywhere. And had there been social media, cell phones, and that kind of technology, you'd have been getting texts blowing you up during the entire gathering if you sat in the right seat. You're on every shot. I just saw you again. I just saw you in the choir. I just saw you doing whatever. Fortunately, we didn't have any of that. So it was only word of mouth. Somewhere later, somebody said, hey, I saw you on TV at First Baptist Church Atlanta. But my point is, it changed what happened in the room because you knew you were on TV. So you might have, if it were current, you might have raised your hands a little higher, or you might have smiled a little bit more often, or you might have chosen where you sat in that particular gathering because you knew where all the shots in the room were. Or maybe you didn't care or even know any of that. But I think most people knew we're on TV right now. So this is a dynamic that went away for me. So I wasn't on TV at church for ever since then. I haven't been on live TV at church since until right now. And now who people who've been sitting at home watching TV and watching other people who have come back to the gatherings ahead of them, now they're in the shot that they were watching at home. You can't tell me that that doesn't somehow on a subliminal level affect someone's experience in the moment. And so I think this is something that we have to really make sure that that doesn't drive any decision that we make, nor does programming drive any decision we make. And if we say, hey, we're going to have a ministry moment right now, and I know it's not going to translate to you people at home, we we sacrificed some programming in the peak of pandemic because things wouldn't translate to someone's living room. Those days are over, and now there will be no sacrifices made on my part <clears throat> for the person at home because mm-hmm. a gathering is a gathering. It's not a TV show, and it's supposed to be led by the Spirit, not led by a programmed mentality for people that are watching sitting 900 miles away. So I just want to say to people, if you are joining online, and that's what we try to say, Carrie, you're not not watching church today. You're joining us from Nebraska. Hey, join in. But uh, if we take a little extra time here or have a prayer moment or a ministry moment or a response moment, and it's not very entertaining, I'm sorry, but that's the moment we're in right now. And hopefully you can lean into that moment from wherever you are. So I think staying true to the spirit, leading the gathering and not being dictated by the red light is going to be the key for the church to really be what it needs to be in this next season. I think that if I, if I can insert a comment here, I think that's probably one of the things, that attitude, that philosophy that um, is so appealing to younger people, that they're just linger, hung, hungering for something like that, which, which I think is awesome, Louie. So you open up your new book, Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table, and you open it with a story of you texting a friend, looking for support, looking for empathy. It's probably been done a million times in life and a hundred million times in the last year as we've all hit the wall at different times. And um, your friend gave you something back you were not expecting to hear. Do you want to tell us that story, what was going on in your life, what happened? It's, it's a fascinating thing because we've all done that. And I'm guilty, Louis. I'm guilty. Yeah, I don't want to get into all the specifics of the uh, backdrop, but we all go through times where 
you know, it's it's a disappointing season on on mm. a lot of fronts. And this was one of those for me. And, you know, when I say disappointing, I mean disappointed in myself and in other people. It was just like, um, and most times in life, especially in, in, in the flow of the world I live in, you know, defending isn't really a, a good option. So you kind of ride things out. And this is six, seven years ago stretch a few months go by and you're just riding things out. And my, my, my thinking is always, if you ride things out, typically something will sort of emerge and float to the surface and there'll be some moment of vindication or something. And that had happened. And uh, I wanted to celebrate it and I, I needed some commiseration and celebration. So I texted a friend who had really walked the whole way with me and said, you are not going to believe what just happened today. And I really just wanted somebody to put their arm around me and say, hey, man, you did good. You know, you're good. You're all right. And uh, my friend, I, I texted a long text, too. And my friend texted back this little blurb. And I was like, surely any second now he's going to, the next text is going to say, sorry, I hit send too soon. Here's the rest of the message. But that was it. So finally, I just dialed into those words, nine words, nine words. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to focus on this. This is what I'm getting. And the words read, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Mm. And Carrie, I cannot describe to you how, how those words just cut through so many layers of frustration, bitterness, control, the fog, the, the staring at the ceiling at night, the trying to manage all the outcomes. There was just so so many layers of that, but those words just cut like a knife through a birthday cake, just like, bam, slice falls over. And I'm like, what am I doing? I am reaching out to a friend to commiserate with me over some little ticky tacky thing that happened today. I'm acting like an orphan when I'm a son of a king and the enemy, my adversary, the capital E enemy who wants to destroy me is at my table. And not only at my table, he's eating my lunch. And I, I was standing at the top of my driveway at our old house. And I just, just I mean, it was like a, a moment of defiance. And everything didn't like instantaneously change. But I mean, everything was set in motion. And mm -hmm. I said to myself standing there, and then I walked in the house and told Shelley, I said, you're not going to believe this text I just got. And babe, we are taking our table back. We are taking back our table. We are taking back the conversation. And it changed everything. Everything. I might not, I'm not trying to hype this too much. I might not be sitting here talking to you as the head of our organization had it not been for that moment. That's how powerful God used those nine words in my life. And this book isn't about a text that I got on my phone. Nobody needs a book about a text I got on my phone. This book is about a text that God breathed out called Scripture. But getting there started with a friend who loved me enough to tell me what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear. In what ways do you think, or did your friend see that you might be giving the enemy a seat at your table? Like, what was going on in your mind? Yeah, I think he saw me being defensive. I think he saw me, he probably felt me leaning on him a little too much. Like, hey, I appreciate that you know that I'm with you in this, but you're putting too much weight on me. 
And isn't that a great way to know? You know, I think when you're in a like codependent relationship through some kind of hardship mm-hmm. in life, you kind of lose sense of how much weight you're putting on each other. Like, like literally, if you move, I will fall on the floor. Or if you move, I will, you will fall on the floor if I move. Um, and I think he felt that and he was like, Hey, I'm with you and I believe in you. And I know, I, I, I know you, but you're leaning too much on me when you've got God at your table leading you and you are being defensive when look at you, you don't have anything to be defensive about. You are making way too big a deal out of this thing as if this is going to define you and this isn't going to define you. No one thinks this about you. And so I think he just saw me in the deep end, you know, hanging on to the life preserver with one hand and reaching out for him with the other and then looking at me going, what What are you doing? You're like, you know, one of my spiritual leaders in life. I need you to, I need you to, you know, get out of the water and start acting like who you are. And it was that little wake up moment. And I think that's what we all have the opportunity to do when we see other people in this zone. And if uh, I think he was feeling strong in that moment of life, there've been some other seasons of life where I've had to be the, that for him. And I think that's, what's made our relationship strong because there have been other seasons where I've tried to help him see more that the enemy's at his table. And so he was in a season of strength and he could help me in a season of being a, being ridiculous. And I think that's really more defining of the season I was in. It wasn't a season of weakness as much as it was just being ridiculous mm-hmm. and losing touch with who I am and who God is and who I am in him. And so he that's isn't that the beauty of it though? We have friendships with people that when we're weak, they're strong. When they're strong, we're weak. And if you have the right people at your table, that's a possibility. They say golf is 10% physical and 90% mental. I don't know. I've never played at a level that would test that. I think I'm still at the physical thing. But leadership is very similar, Louis, where so much of it happens in your mind. And this is where you go in that book. What um, mind games, what um, mental space do you see the traps that leaders keep falling into that might give way to the enemy having a seat at our table? What are what are some of the common pitfalls you see in leaders, either in yourself or in leaders in general, because you work with a lot? Well, a phrase we've heard a lot in the last year, it's been around forever, but we've heard more of it in the last 18 months, is that idea of fight or flight. And it's a decision that we all make at different points of a day. Sometimes it's a real decision if you're out on a hike and you run into a bear. It's a real thing. Am I going to outrun this bear? Am I going to have to fight this bear? How's this going to go down? But as a leader, every single day, I believe that there's a challenge to our identity and a challenge to our security. Like, how secure am I in God's calling on my life? And how secure am I in my ability to do what God has called me to do. And insecurity um, opens a four-car garage to having the enemy at your table Mm. because it puts you in a defensive mindset. So you walk into your organization thinking, who's with me and who's not with me? And this is what, when when I have conversations with other leaders, it's amazing to me 
how the the elite leaders talk about things they're working on. And the next tiers down leaders talk about the people they're working with. And it's what mm. separates the, that's what, it's the separator. It's fascinating. It's the separator. And it doesn't mean that the elite leaders don't have relational issues. They just somehow have elevated out of security, I believe. I know what God's called me to do, and I know what I'm able to do. They've elevated into, let me tell you what we're working on. And they're not, um, they're not clued out to the needs of their team. And I've seen some that are very clued in. But all the conversation is, let me tell you what I'm working on. You drop down to your, to your next few tiers of leaders. And as you go lower and lower, the conversations are, oh, man, I got to tell you about this guy I'm working with. This guy is a piece of work. I have to tell you about mm. this girl, that's, this lady that's on our board. I'm telling you, she is, if it weren't for her, if she weren't there, da 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 And so I think the difference between those two people wow. is a sense of security, And secure leaders are able to walk into an organization and not take stock every day of like, who's with me and who's not with me. They just walk in the door and say, I feel called to be here. I feel that God's going to give me what I need to lead our organization. And now I'm going to lead our organization and I'm not going to go home and take role across the room and go, now, did everybody's expression look positive today when I was rolling out the new idea? Do people like me here? Are there people against me here? Are there people that don't want me here? Um, and, you know, all of that feeds into that, that cycle that spirals us all the way down to what I call being a, a closed-fisted leader. Mm-hmm. And you just, you want to make sure you hit before you get hit. And a lot of organizations operate that way. Like they're watching the competition. That's all they do is just watch the competition. And they're like, oh, they're opening a thing over on this corner. We better open on that corner before they get open on that corner. That is such a poor leadership strategy for any Mm -hmm. organization. Wake up and do what God has called you to do and be secure in that. And that's called open-handed leadership where you actually go, wow, I'm so glad y'all are opening on that corner because it's closer to my house. We're not going to open on that corner because we don't really feel like that's what we're called to do, but I am going to come by and I'm going to make sure I give you my business because I want you to succeed. And I'm going to actually email everybody in our little neighborhood homeowners association and let them know that you're opening up closer to our house. Um, That's called open-handed leadership. And if you put it on spiritual terms, the closed (laughs) fist God cannot fill. But the empty hand and the open hand, God can fill. And so the way to grow your business and your organization is to open your hands, not to close your hands. And I think that maybe is a long roundabout answer to your question. Oh, it's a great answer. And I'm so glad you started there. I'm sure you've got a list, Louis. But if we can drill down on insecurity, has that been a journey for you? And if so, what are you learning about becoming a more secure leader? Or what have you seen about dealing with insecurity? Because that's been part of my journey too, you know, over the last two or three decades. It's like, yeah, I started out pretty insecure and I still have my moments. But you're right. It's, it takes something in an elite leader to say, hey, here's what I'm working on. Here are some of the struggles I'm going through. Here's what I'm doing to address them you know, how can I serve you? That's a journey. Any reflection from your own life on what has helped with that? Well, I've talked about openly before, and I've talked to you before just about, I think the two, you know, when in 
2008, um, I fell into a pretty deep hole, a pretty dark place for a while. And I've said that I think, I don't really know if I could articulate how that happened, but I've said before that if there were two hands pushing me over the edge at the end of the day, it was um, an unhealthy need for the approval of other people and a desire for control. And so these are real things in my story. And I don't think anything magical happened in 2008 or nine in that season of coming out of that hole to make control and a need for approval just, you know, vaporize out of my story. So it's been a process of getting to know them. And I think this is how we overcome the obstacles and how we grow as people is we actually have to get to know the person that we are. And that means facing up to stuff and verbalizing it and me even saying it again today, as much as you kind of want to say, hey, I said that eight years ago. Can we move on from that now? So every so often, meaning a few times a month, I have to take stock of what my motivators are, because I know the tendency could be to revert back to needing approval. And approval is a tricky thing um, because commendation is a very healthy thing. And to be commended, recognized, acknowledged, affirmed, these are all good things. I have a, a bunch of kind people who said something nice about my book in the front. I like to call them commendations more than endorsements. Hmm. Um, a lot of those people didn't read the book probably, but they believed enough in me and they know me well enough to know this guy, you know, can say something that might be used by God to help you. And I realize that 99.999% of the people in the world have no clue who I am. So you have commendation and it's a good thing. But if that becomes adulation, which is my value is rooted in the amount of commendation I get on a given day or the amount of affirmation I get on a given day. And that now is, that's the grade of my value. Now I'm, you know, a hamster on a wheel and um, the wheel will break or I'll break or we'll both break at some point. And so I have to check in consistently with myself and ask myself, am I doing this because I was called to do it? Am I taking pleasure in it because God created me and uniquely gifted me to do it? Or am I performing um, so that I can get adulation, which makes me feel important? And the answer on a given day, to be really candid, could be all over the map. But asking the question is what gets you pointing back to the center and pointing back to the origin, back to that lens I talked about, seeing myself through the lens of the creator, not through the lens of me or through the lens of you, but seeing myself through the lens of the creator. And it's, I, I don't know how other leaders do it, Carrie, so I'm not, and I'm not a leadership expert, but I would guess every leader struggles with that on some level. Oh, I do. I'm doing I, daily I mode guess checks. every human struggles with that on some level. Mm-hmm. And so when you add to that the control factor, um, you know, you've got a combination just in those two things for a, a lot of train wrecks on a given day, especially if you're in a growing organization or if you're in a, a role like I'm in where people see your face regularly. 
So staying close to Jesus sounds like a simple response, but it's not simple at all. It, it is not complicated, but it's not like some elementary idea. Staying close to Jesus is what allows us to relinquish control, or not that we have any control, to understand that we're not in control and come to terms with it, make peace with it. I'm not in charge of hardly anything. And it allows us to know that we matter and that we matter before we did anything and that we'll matter to him no matter what we do. Even if we really blow everything up, we'll still matter to him. And uh, there may be a lot of, you know, stuff that has to get fixed, but will still matter to him. And it's being close to, to him, that's where that's where the power is. Yeah. I really appreciate that. That's worth uh, playing back at uh, 1x speed and listening to a few times. So, so thank you for that. Um, any other ways that you see leaders giving the enemy a seat at the table? Well, I think the most damaging thing that, uh, that can happen to a leader, and this is probably the leadership axiom that's in this book that's kind of hidden. I don't know that if, if I've even, if it's even written in, you know, clear language, but leaders are made to create and we mm. leaders do a lot of different things. I mean, I think leaders rise above and leaders, um, they point in the right direction and they, they do a lot of things, but ultimately leaders create. And that's what, what a gift to think that we can actually make something that honors God and reflects God and helps people. So I don't know what somebody's leading today, but that's what hopefully you're doing. You're creating something that's reflecting the beauty of the creator and it's helping people. It's serving people. It's making people's lives richer, more meaningful. And so that's how important gaining the ground of your mind is because you can, you only have so much real estate at your mental table. And if you're spending a lot of it worrying about the finances or worrying about the factions in your organization or worrying about surviving personally um, in the midst of whatever pressures there are, then all of that time spent is time that you're not creating. And as soon as you stop creating, your organization starts dying. And so, yes, you may end up managing everything and getting control, but guess what? You got nothing to be in control of anymore because your organization's already dead. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is the cost that leaders are paying when stress, worry, competition, are are dominating their thinking because a before it puts you in a closed fist position which is a losing position and it's robbing you of the oxygen that you need to create right. something and so i think getting the enemy away from my table as a leader looks a lot like walking in the door and going okay i did a heart check before i got here but now i want to i want to really get focused on what are we doing today and I want to get about doing that and not sitting back and being too contemplative about why so-and-so didn't speak to me in the parking lot this morning, because that might rob me today. And, and you know, here's, a, here's the real world. So I come into work, not talking about today. Bob doesn't talk to me or 
Bonnie doesn't talk to me in the parking lot. And what that dominoes into, Carrie, is six water cooler conversations. This is back in the day when people used to go to offices and work. Six conversations through the day. What's up with Bonnie? You, you even heard anything? You notice Bob? Anybody heard anything from what's going on with Bob? Bob thinking about leaving? Well, I don't know if he's thinking about leaving or not, but I don't know. I just heard his marriage isn't in good shape, so maybe he's just out of whack. What's wrong with his marriage? Well, you know, his wife's crazy. Well, I didn't know that. What's crazy about her? And by the time you hit go home time, what has happened? And if you multiply that out by a factor of 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 through your organization on any given Thursday, all the productivity that gets sapped out of your organization, much less the heart and soul. I mean, that's mm. number one, but the productivity that just got sapped out because we were supposed to come to work to create something good today. That's really why we came here today, not to clock in and clock out and get a paycheck. We came here to do something good. So leaders have to continually fight for the brain space to say, my mission is to lead a team to make something that makes other people's lives more meaningful. Did we do that today? And I think the more we're focused on that, the less the enemy is at our table. How do you um, win back your mind? How do you get out of those mind games, out of the insecurity, out of the paranoia, out of the desire to control? What are some strategies that have really helped you? Because you go there in the book. Yeah, well, you have to have a baseline. If, if it's you and you, then... Um, and I, I know the, our audience today is across the, you know, the faith landscape. Yeah, sure. But from and your so perspective. If it's, um, it's kind of you and you figuring things out in life, um, I don't know how you do that. Because for me, the only <laughs> Nor do I. way I know how to do it is to go to um, an indisputable norm. So I guess it would be like if someone was an architect at, at the end of the day, they're like, hey, no, we put the level up or we put the thing up and this is square and this is not square and we're going to go with square. For me, it's putting God's truth into the equation and going, okay, this is square and this is not square. And fortunately, we have his truth. We have scripture in our hands, which is a miracle. And we have his spirit to help us understand it. And we're in a relationship with him. So it's not just information. It actually is transformation. So it's a, it's a pretty great resource. And what I've found, Carrie, for myself is that you can't get the enemy away from your table by fighting the enemy out, out of your table. You get the enemy away from your table by inviting truth to your table, realizing mm. that he's already sitting there, namely your yep. good shepherd. But it's replacing lies with truth. You can't fight a lie. You can only replace a lie. And so, Ah. and the simplest way to do that for me is literally to write it down. And I've talked about this a lot, but pandemic is a perfect example. A lot of people didn't make it through pandemic. Some of my friends don't have this opportunity. They didn't make it. But we, by the grace of God, if you're listening to this right now, you made it. And so... When the enemy comes to you next month, when you're going through whatever challenge you're facing, personal, financial, relational, whatever's happening in your business or your organization and going on in your own mind, and the enemy says, hey, man, this is going to be the last lap for you. You're not going to make it through this. You need to write that down. This guy's trying to sit down. What does he tell me? You're not going to make it through this month. 
And then I go, well, let me go to my baseline, to my truth, which is scripture. And I go right into God's word and I find him telling me that he's actually going to lead me through. And I have actual evidence to back it up because, Carrie, the only way the enemy can tell me that I'm not going to make it through this situation is that I've made it through every situation that he told me I wasn't going to make it through. (laughs) Yeah. So every time he told me I wasn't going to make it, he was wrong because I'm here listening to him tell me again I'm not going to make it. So I write across the top, God has brought me through every situation I've ever been in. The death of both of my parents after they're suffering years-long debilitating diseases. He's bringing me through seven years of my wife's father's cancer. He brought me through a hole of depression that I never thought I'd see the light of day again. And I can go, I mean, I can go on forever. And every time, miraculously, God brought me through. So I wrote that on the top. Bottom line, you're not going to make it through this month. Top line, God has brought me through every situation I've ever been in. So I look at that, and I just took my pen and scratched out the bottom line, because the top line's actually true. Not hype. It's true. I circled it, and I said, that's my new narrative. How you doing? When I went to have coffee with a friend, I said, man, it is hard right now. But you know what? God has brought me through every situation I've ever been through, and I believe he's going to bring me through this one. That's a completely different narrative than the coffee I was going to have the day before when I was going to tell the enemy's story when he asked me and say, I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm going to make it through this or not. That did not come from the shepherd sitting at my table. That came from the enemy who's been telling me that my whole life. So I crossed out his lie. I wrote down the truth and I made that my new narrative, not with signs and banners and whistles and the little things that you blow out the party favors on New Year's. Hey, everybody, I'm great. God's going to bring me. No, it's hard. It's tough. But God's going to bring me through. That's so solid. And, you know, you're, you're a musician. You write songs. You, you, music has been such a huge part. But as you're describing that, isn't that really the Psalms? Isn't that basically like you get into all 150 of them? It doesn't take you more than five minutes until you bumped into, oh, the enemy's bearing down on us. It looks like it's over. But, hey, I know better. Um, and and I really appreciate what you said about you versus you. I, I've thought about that a lot. You know, and as a person of faith myself, a Christian myself, Louie, it's like, I don't know where I'd be if I only had myself as a counselor or self-affirmations as a counselor. And so I, I love that idea of objective truth. Anything else you want to share with leaders who are feeling like, uh-oh, I've, uh, I've allowed the negative voices to gain a little bit too much ground. Any final word for them, Louie? Well, you're the leader. You want to be the leader. Most leaders want to be the leader. And the definition of being a leader is that you, you have to be able to, to see what is and make decisions based on that. You have to make the call. You got to make the choice. You've got to set the priority. And I think that when leaders have a tendency to do that in the corporate landscape, but then 
because of pace. You and I both know about pace. Um, mm-hmm. Or because of choice, they say, but when it comes to me in my corporation, the corporation of me, uh, I'm going to get a pass today or this week or this month. And a, and a pass this month turns in a pass for life. And, you know, everybody I, I know that talks about leadership says the most important axiom of leadership is that you have to start by leading yourself. And so I would just gently say that to every leader today. You have the capacity to lead. You know that already. You have the gifts and even the desire to lead. So lead. Lead by making the confession today, I'm going to take back my table. I'm going to take back my table. I can, and I'm going to. And again, if you have the power, the help of God in your life, then this is a reality of something that you can do. Um, even if it's just you and you, and there is no spiritual um, uh, value mm-hmm. in the equation, you still can take back your table. Um, you can Dale Carnegie. You can still choose a better thought. You can still upgrade your thinking process. You can still root out things that are not true or helpful or don't match reality. Even if you don't have a spiritual component, you can immediately upgrade your thinking by opening your hands and just going and serving somewhere in the community. Promise you that's going to change your mindset. I mean, there's studies that say when we go and volunteer and help in our communities, that it improves actually the neuron pathways in our brains and releases in us a sense of joy and peace. So even if you don't have a a spiritual equation, there are ways to improve your thinking. But if you have the aid of God, you are a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, you do believe in resurrection reality, then you've just got to make the decision at some point, I need to lead me. And I'm Mm going to make that the priority because being a better you means being a better leader for your organization. Oh, Louis, as always, it's so rich. Thank you. So you are online and people want to follow you and we'll see where that goes long-term. Where can people follow you online? And then the book is called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table, available everywhere books are sold. Um, But tell us a little bit about anything online if people want to track with you a bit more. Well, there's a few different ways uh, that our organization moves. And I think the best way for people will be just to come to louisgiglio.com. I'm not trying to... Uh, I sell anything on my website. So it's not like, hey, I need to get more people there. But church links into there. Ultimately, conference, which is the gathering we do for 18 to 25-year-olds called Passion, will link into there. Books and resources will link into there. Um, Or you can find, there's not too many Louis Giglios floating around. So I'm (laughs) probably the one you're going to find on social media somewhere. Louis, thanks for being with us again today. Really, really cherish our time together. Thank Gary, you. it's always rich and uh, always something I look forward to. So blessings to you and um, I'm looking forward to seeing you in real life very soon. going to happen, man. I'm getting on planes again. Thanks, Louie. Thank you. Well, if you want more, and I suspect some of you will, we have show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 436. Find everything there, including transcripts. For those of you who like to read, maybe there's something you want to drill down on. They are searchable something, I love it. You ever listen to a podcast and you're like, oh, what was that again? Well, with transcripts, you just go search the keyword. You will find it instantly rather than scrolling back and scrolling back and back 30 seconds and forward 15 seconds trying to find it. Yeah, that'll help. So we do that for uh, pretty much every episode and are happy 
to do that for you. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up. So do stay tuned for Ask Me Anything About Productivity, brand new feature on this podcast. I'm going to coach Stacy and Graham about their productivity challenges. And I'll tell you how you can get involved too. Uh, and next episode, we're going to hear from Jennifer Kalari. So my wife does a podcast. She and Dr. Rob Muter do the Smart Family Podcast. And I listened to Jennifer Kalari and I'm like, this isn't about kids. This is about like adults. And we had a wide ranging conversation about how to de-escalate conflict and tension on teams and staff and with adults. And she explains her calm technique, how she developed it. Here's an excerpt. If you are angry and what is coming out of your mouth feels fantastic, you're being a jerk. Okay. It's not, it's not, you're not being nice. You're being mean. You're being a, you know, definition. Yeah. (laughs) You should feel your own frontal lobe suppressing like, okay. Like you should feel your brain actually do the inhibiting. If you are free flow yelling and it feels great, it's wrong. Also coming up because we've been working hard on the lineup for the fall. We got Mike Todd coming back. Uh, We have Dave Hollis. Who else? We've got Scott O'Neill, who is the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers. Charles Duhigg is going to talk all about habits. Chris McChesney, Juliet Funt, David Allen from Getting Things Done. And uh, also have Amy Porterfield. If you follow Marketing Made Simple, she does an incredible job with that. And a whole lot more coming up this fall. Excited for that. And thanks to our partners for being with us on this episode. If you would like to get $200 off the regular ministry grid pricing so you can train your volunteers and do everything online for your church in terms of equipping, discipleship, courses, head on over to ministrygrid.com slash carry. Get $200 off the regular ministry grid price. And you can get 10% off your first year of social media management and digital growth by going to promediafire.com forward slash carry. That's promediafire.com forward slash carry. Well, it's time for a brand new feature, Ask Me Anything About Productivity. And I would love to hear from you. So we're doing this as part of the launch of my new book. It is called At Your Best. And I'm going to share with you in the book and also on this podcast, the productivity strategy that I've used for the last 15 years and have taught thousands of leaders and now is finally available in book form. So you can read this. It's a philosophy. It's also very hyper-practical. I'd love to see you get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. You can head on over to atyourbesttoday.com to learn more about that. But if you've got a productivity question, let me coach you. You can simply go to kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast, click on the button, start recording, Leave me a voice message and uh, you may hear your question answered here on the podcast. Okay, and let's start with Stacy. Stacy's got a challenge I think a lot of people can relate to. Let's hear from her. Hey, Carrie. My productivity seems to go in cycles where I'm doing really good for a period of time and then something will get thrown in there and I'll get off track and I won't pick it back up for maybe a few months later and get back into that routine that I feel like is a healthy, productive routine. Um, And I'm just wondering how you stay consistent in um, just showing up even when (laughs) um, things like that happen um, and just how you stay focused on what you're doing to just show up every day. Stacy, I have been there. I before I developed the um, <laughs> the whole strategy that I outline in at your best. I mean, I was there. It's a really 
great challenge, right? You're like, okay, I'm going to get on top of it. Like September's coming. I'm going to be on top of this. And you're on top of it for September. And then something blows up and you don't know what's going to hit you. And the challenge with a lot of us is we don't have a comprehensive system to really handle every day. And every day brings surprises. Every day brings a crisis. Every day brings something new. Every day brings something surprising. And so what I've found, and I want you to think about this, Stacy, life consists of repeating patterns. Um, we are creatures of habit, for better or worse. And some of those habits are good habits. Some of those habits are bad habits. If you don't believe that you're a creature of habit, that you are very creative, try taking a different route home from work or sitting at a different spot at the dinner table tonight. Okay, it freaks everybody out. Stuff as simple as that, because we don't think, oh, I have habitual patterns, but we do. So here's what I've done with the At Your Best strategy. I would suggest that you try to figure out your optimal routine. So think about it. When are you at your best? When? What are those three to five peak productivity hours every day? I call that the green zone. So in your green zone, that's when you're like fresh, you're alive, you're, 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 you're thinking, you know, if you're a writer like I am, things are flowing. If you're a manager, your meetings are amazing. If you're a mom, like you're patient with the kids, right? Whatever you happen to be doing in life, um, what are those three to five hours a day where you're at your best? So think about that. And then think about what is your most important work. So of all the things you could get done in the day, what are the most important things? So this is the heart of the at your best strategy. And then put those there. So in my case, it's writing great content. So whether that content is for a podcast like this, whether that is for my blog, whether it's for a book, there's a huge difference in my life between trying to write at 7 a.m. and trying to write at 7 p.m. or trying to write at 8 a.m. or trying to write at 3.30 p.m. In the morning window, for me, it's 7 to 11 a.m. I'm really at my best. Now, you may be a night owl. It might happen in the p.m. hours. A lot of our team is afternoon people. They love like 2 to 4, 2 to 6. That's when their productivity peaks. There's no right answer, but there is your answer, Stacy. So when are you at your best? And then what I would do is take your most important work. What is going to move the needle? Because as Stephen Covey pointed out years ago, the urgent always crowds out the important. What you do is you take what you're best at, like the most important work you can do, and do it when you are at your best. And that will produce exponential productivity. Because here's, here's what happens. If you don't do that, you've got something really important. So you've got the strategic plan you got to work on, or you've got a report that's due Thursday. And so you're like, okay, I got to get that done. But then your phone blows up and you get lost in your inbox and five people knock on your door. And the next thing you know, it's 3.30 in the afternoon. You have not touched the most important thing to guard those hours to really say, okay, I'm going to focus. I'm going to turn off all notifications on my devices. I'm not available. I'm going to get this stuff done. You crank it out. On days where I do that well, uh, I can often feel like I can go home at 11 a.m. It's like, you know what? I like I wrote that piece. I got that done. Uh, pastors, if you got your message prepared, you know that that has solved so many problems. You're ready for that big meeting. If you did the report, if you read the book or whatever you need to do, if that is done, when you're at your best, first of all, you're going to do a better job because you're sharp. Secondly, um, you move the big rocks. Like that is finished. Now, your question about, okay, so you do that for a week, it's great. You need to systematize this. And this is where being a creature of habit uh, comes down. So if you go to atyourbesttoday.com, you'll get a masterclass. But eventually, when you get into the book, you'll be able to download for free, once you get the book, uh, the Thrive Calendar. And the Thrive Calendar 
schedules those windows of time in your calendar in perpetuity. So let's say on Monday, you want to use your green zone, your best hours for, I'm going to pick writing because that's what I do. Writing. You just, every Monday, you know, from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. in my case, it just says writing. And that means I'm not available for breakfast meetings. I'm not available for other meetings because it prioritizes my work. Now, I don't even have to be specific about the kind of writing I'm doing because I'm a, I'm a creature of habit like you are. Uh, maybe it's um, it's strategic planning. Maybe it's meeting with your top leaders. Maybe it's preparing a report. Maybe um, you know, you're doing research into something, but you just block that off. You time block it and it's just in your calendar as a hold. And then you don't let anything else compete with that. And you do that repeatedly. Now, there's also yellow zones and red zones. And we'll get into this in some of the coaching down the road. And it's also all in the book. But when you schedule that all out, your priorities sort themselves out. So that's what will get you out of the cycle of, oh, I had a really great week. And now I'm a train wreck because I've been there. And when I started scheduling this over a decade ago, that solves so much and allows me to do what I do today. Really hope that helps Stacy. So I've got something really exciting to share with you. My newest book, At Your Best, comes out on September 14th, and I would like to help you get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. So the book is all about, not about burnout, but basically about how I recovered from burnout and how you can stay out of burnout and recover from burnout yourself if you're there. It's creating a sustainable pace. Uh, You deserve to stop living at a sustainable pace and stop building a life that you want to escape from. And if you are interested in getting a system that I've had the privilege of training thousands of leaders in before writing this book, so it's proven, it's not doesn't just work in my life, it's helped thousands of leaders get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor, it's finally available in book form. So you can go to atyourbesttoday.com, and when you pre-order the book, you can get the audiobook, you can get the Kindle, and of course you can get the hardcover, you'll get special bonuses, including a masterclass from me. We shot this masterclass at a beautiful studio in Toronto. I give you so much content in this masterclass. It's absolutely free when you pre-order the book at your best. So go to atyourbesttoday.com. And if you've got a question, I'd love to coach you. So uh, you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast and leave me a voicemail and maybe you will be coached on one of the future episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Really, really good to be back with you. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.